Since Easter, Joe and Katie and I have been preaching this sermon series called Image of God, Theological and Scriptural Resources for a World of Me Too and Black Lives Matter. Today, a very well-known story from Luke chapter 15. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. And so the father divided his property between his sons. And a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his inheritance in riotous living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. And the young man would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger." I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. And so the younger son set off and went to his father. But while the young man was yet far off, the man ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him. And the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best robe. And put it on him, and put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, and let's have a feast to celebrate. For this son of mine was dead, but now he's alive again. He was lost, but now he's found. Now the elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. And the servant replied, Your brother has come home and your father has prepared a feast because he has got him back safe and sound. But the older brother became angry and refused to go in. And his father came out to him and began to plead with him. But the son answered his father, Look, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this your son of yours, this son of yours came back, who's devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to the older son, Son, you are always with me. All that I have is yours. We had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead. But now he's become alive. He was lost, and now he's found. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in this series called Image of God, we've been trying to think with you about what it means to be the image of God toward, and to see the image of God in those who walk the way with us. We've talked about some hard things, right? Sometimes it's hard to be the image of God toward and to see the image of God in the other and the different, the other gender or a different race or religion or ethnicity or language. 
But what about being and seeing the image of God in our own homes with those who are most precious to us? This should be the easiest of all, right? To see the image of God in those who are most precious to us. In a slim but important little book called The Four Loves, C.S. Lewis pointed out that people who are perfectly charming in public drop their manners the instant they enter their front door at the end of the day. They become loud and pushy or indifferent and absent. They show disdain or contempt. Ironically, sometimes we are most unkind to those we love the most. And it's because we can be, right? We have to be nice at work, but our spouses and our children are trapped. They have to love us, or they at least have to stay with us even if they don't. John Gottman is a famous marriage therapist in Seattle, and he will invite married couples to what he calls his love lab and put them in an ordinary room that looks like an ordinary studio apartment except for the hidden microphones and video cameras. And Dr. Gottman asks them to act natural and to talk about something that is difficult for them to talk about. And Dr. Gottman says that after five minutes of observation, he can tell which of those couples is going to be divorced. And the definitive indicator he looks for is disdain or contempt. You know what he means, right? The, the raised eyebrow or the vocalized scorn or the aggressive sneer, contempt or disdain. And that's just another way of talking about what happens when we fail to see the image of God in those we love, right? And so for Father's Day, I thought we'd look at one of the most famous fathers in the history of literature to see what we might learn there. Because it's hard, right? Raising children is hard. Ray Romano says that raising children is like living in a frat house. Nobody sleeps, everything's broken, and there's a lot of throwing up. And you've probably heard what Teddy Roosevelt said about raising children, right? When President Roosevelt entered the White House in 1901, his daughter Alice was 17 years old, and she instantly became the biggest scandal in the District of Columbia. She chewed gum in public. She smoked cigarettes in public. She took her pet snake to fancy dinner parties in the White House. She ran up huge debts, losing at poker and with exorbitant shopping. And she would burst into the president's executive office in the middle of his meeting with visiting dignitaries. And when one such visiting dignitary asked him to put Alice on a shorter leash, the president replied, Mr. Wister, I can either be president of the United States or I can attend to Alice. I cannot possibly do both. Anybody here? Think, no, don't, don't answer that. So we could probably use a little help. And this story by Jesus, this little yarn, is the most perfect story ever told, right? Its first line has five words. A man had two sons. This is muscular, masculine storytelling. No adjectives, no adverbs, just five monosyllabic nouns and verbs. A man had two sons. The younger son says, Father, give me now the inheritance that will properly belong to me when you die. I don't want to wait. I want it now. And you can hear how rude and disrespectful this is from the ears of a, an ancient Palestinian, right? 
Not to put too fine a point on it, this younger son is telling his father to drop dead. I don't want to wait until you're dead to get what's mine, he says. Now the father should have known better, right? He should have refused. It is not wise to distribute your legacy prematurely. Notice that this is the same plot device Shakespeare uses for his magnum opus, King Lear. Lear is not quite dead, but he's old and tired, and he wants to retire from the throne, so he distributes his estate to his three daughters way too early. And from then on, everything goes to hell in a handbasket for everybody, until by the end of the play there are more bodies lying across the stage than in any other play except Titus Andronicus. Well, you know Jesus' little story. Predictably, things don't go too well for the young man. It isn't too many months before he runs out of food and money and friends and options. Jesus tells us that he squandered his inheritance in riotous living. I love the way the King James Bible puts that. In riotous living. Pretty soon there's nothing to do but to crawl home in disgrace. And then, one of the most beautiful lines anywhere in the Bible or outside of it. While he was yet far off, Jesus tells us, while he was yet far off, the Father runs to meet him and welcomes him home. And then the ring, the robe, the feast, the party. So how does the waiting father run to meet his son? Actually, he runs to meet both of his sons. Later, when the older son refuses to come to the party, Jesus will tell us that the father goes out to meet him too, where he is. So I love the flexibility of this father's parenting, right? You know this if you're a parent. Not one size fits all. Isn't it remarkable how two children or more from the same gene pool and the same environment and the same parenting strategy can turn out to be such vastly divergent human beings, right? I love the way the ABC sitcom Modern Family talks about this. If you watch Modern Family, I don't even know if it's still on. But somehow, Phil and Claire Dunphy, using the same genes and the same environment, the same nature and the same nurture, end up parenting Haley, the wanton rebellious hellion, and Alex, the compliant, conscientious valedictorian. By the way, this is neither here nor there, but do you notice how much of what we know about family comes from TV? I ran across the most wonderful web page this week. It's called The 50 Most Definitive Family TV Shows Ranked in Order. 50 in the last 60 years or so. Modern Family is number 18. Can you guess which is number one? Nobody at the 8 o'clock service got this right. It's The Simpsons. <laughs> anyway, the father in Jesus' little story has managed to produce two vastly different personalities from the same gene pool and the same environment, same nurture, same, nur same nature, the prodigal and the parsimonious, the grunge runaway, and the Brooks Brothers Wharton MBA. And this patient, flexible father, who for Jesus, of course, is a cipher for the lavish grace of God, 
never stop seeing the image of God in his prodigal son, even after the young man tells his father to drop dead, then runs away as far away as it's possible to get, and then disgraces himself with prostitutes and pigs. Always a second chance. But this patient father isn't through yet. Neither does he stop seeing the image of God in his older son, this pinch-penny guardian of all that's right and fair, and he whimpers and whines and locks himself into his corner office with his blackberry and refuses to come to the party. All that I have is yours, the father tells his older son. All that I have is yours, but your brother has come home. We had to celebrate. We thought he, he was dead, but he's alive. He was lost but he's found. You know that before I agree to marry a young couple, I make them pass a test. 165 multiple choice questions. I send you a link. You click on all the right answers. And when it's all just perfect, you click send. And the computer grades it, compares your answers, and gives you a grade and sends the results to me, and when I print the results out, it's 28 pages long. Now, one of the most important categories in this test is children, right? Almost every couple I marry plans to have children. And so sometimes when we talk about parenting, I tell them that every father owes his children two great gifts, high expectations and lavish grace, rules and forgiveness, High hopes for grand achievement at school, at church, in athletics or the arts or whatever they're into, in kind and generous brotherhood and sisterhood to the other offspring of the brood, in friendships, in service to the community. But then, also understanding when inevitably the child falls short of those high expectations. And the father in Jesus' little story manages his family with this tricky but integral combination of expectation and grace. One last thing and then I'll quit. I wasn't sure if you would be interested in this little story, but I shared it with Ralph Smith and Ralph thought you might like to hear it too. When my father died two years ago at the age of 87, I googled his name to see what kind of impact he'd made on the wider world during his lifetime but Google barely knew he existed. He was born in Africa to Baptist missionaries. His father died of yellow fever when my father was eight months old, and he and his mother stayed on in Nyasaland afterward to carry out the work of the gospel. Nyasaland is now called Malawi. In 1938, when Hitler became restive and aggressive in Europe, and his U-boat started sinking all British and French shipping across the Atlantic, my grandmother sent my father home because there would be no American citizens crossing the Atlantic until the end of the war. My father didn't see his mother for seven years. He made it safely back to the States, but he tells me that his first little girlfriend, Mary Bell, who made the same passage on a different ship, an African freighter named the Zambezi, Um, While she was making her way across the Atlantic, halfway across, a German U-boat commander signaled the captain of the Zambezi and said, this is a courtesy call. We are going to sink your ship. 
get your passengers into lifeboats and we won't bother them. And so my father's first girlfriend was adrift in the Atlantic for 19 days before she was rescued. My grandmother asked her sister, my father's aunt, to care for him stateside till she could come home at the end of the war, but Aunt Cora said no, she didn't want to be bothered. So my father sent his childhood and youth in missionary kids' homes in South Carolina. They were orphanages, not nice places. For all practical purposes, my father's childhood was straight out of a Dickens novel. He was David Copperfield or Oliver Twist. Two weeks before I was born, he began working for a Fortune 500 company and stayed there for 35 years until he retired. He never really made it far up the corporate ladder, but he also never missed a day of work. When I grew up, I married the girl next door, almost literally. Kathy's house was on my paper route. She lived two blocks north of me, and I lived on a main street in our town, and she had to drive past my house to get anywhere, to school, to church, to the grocery store. And so she probably walked or drove by my house every day for 10 years. And she remembers that if she drove or walked past my house between 5 p.m. and 9 dark 30 any evening, there David would be playing ball with my brother and me. Baseball in the summer, football in the autumn, basketball all winter long, no matter how much snow there was or how cold it was, we would shovel the snow off the driveway. Now, Google does not know he exists. That's not quite true. He appears in three places. His obituary, the white pages, where every American who has a home appears, and in uh, the web page of a nonprofit agency. He's in the list of donors at an orphanage. And yet, for the last 30 years, I have been asking myself the same question over and over again. This question comes out of nowhere. It is unbidden. It is precognitive. It is not thought. It just comes. My frequent question is WWDD. A lot of us ask the WWJD question, what would Jesus do? I do too a lot, but I have another WW question. What would Dave do? What would dad do? Every time I have a complicated parenting quandary, that's the question I ask myself. And if I can convince myself that what I'm about to do for or with my son is what my father would have done with and for me, then I guess I'm on the right path. I always wondered where he learned to be such a great father because he had none of his own. He was practically an orphan. And yet he was always, always running to meet me while I was yet far off. I didn't deserve that. I never deserved that. Yet it was mine from the day I was born. I hope the same is true for you. But if it's not, I hope you will make it true for somebody else. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen. Please pray with me once more. God, we give you thanks for all those who have 
loved us into loveliness and graced us into gracefulness. Hear our silent prayers of thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.